Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC in New York, I'm Charlie Sykes. This is Indivisible, public radio's new live national call-in show for the first 100 days of the Trump administration. And I apologize, but I, I just can't get this you know, thought out of my mind. I'm trying to remember what the most awkward dinner party I ever had was. And think about this, the, the, worst, the worst dinner party you ever had, maybe your in-laws were over, somebody at work ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend, your most obnoxious relative who was drunk. I, 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 I want to think about that for a moment and then think about what is it going to be like at the White House tonight when Donald Trump has dinner with Ted Cruz and his wife Heidi. This is the woman whose looks Trump once publicly mocked. Now, a lot of women, I think, would find that kind of awkward. I think a lot of guys would, too, might not relish the idea of sitting down and breaking bread with somebody who insulted their wives. <laughs> but it actually gets worse because you remember that Trump also suggested that Ted Cruz's dad may have been involved in the assassination of JFK. So how are they going to break the ice tonight? Something tells me that it's probably not going to be with uh, a Trump apology because we know he kind of uh, he doesn't really do that. And well... Uh, we have made it to day 48 of the first 100 days of the Trump presidency, and it continues to be. Well, you know, the word uh, weird doesn't really capture it. Last week, Donald Trump gave a speech. We talked about that. A lot of pundits thought it was quite presidential. There was some speculation that he might have finally made a pivot, which lasted what? What was that, about two days? Uh, turns out Attorney General uh, Jeff Sessions had been less than forthcoming. When he told the U.S. Senate that he hadn't met with any Russian officials, when in fact he had met with the Russian ambassador at least twice. You notice how these Russian meetings keep coming up and they feel the need not to tell the truth about him? Well, that led Sessions uh, to recuse himself from uh, any investigation of Trump and Russia. And uh, Saturday Night Live, of course, asked the question that, that all of us are wondering about. A nation divided. The issue of immigration. Absolutely no illegal immigration. Deportation of mass deportation. Led by a president with unchecked power. Mr. Trump just spoke to Vladimir Putin. Tax returns from Donald Republicans Trump. Republicans have blocked the first They've attempt. They've got to get their act together. Until one Republican decided enough was enough. A patriot who put country over party who finally stood up for his nation's founding values. A man by the name of... TBD. Yeah, it'll be determined, but it will, it will happen. I can, I'm promising you this, right? Uh, of course, uh, then there was uh, Saturday morning, the, uh, the tweet storm, where the President of the United States, home alone, uh, tweeted out an accusation, basically uh, in six tweets, implying that his predecessor, Barack Obama, had committed a felony, just another day in American politics. President had uh, no evidence to back up the charge that Obama had ordered that he be wiretapped. Later, the White House uh, suggested, well, um, he just wanted an investigation. Now, think about this. You're the president of the United States, and you have access to the best information, the best research anywhere, and you get your news from Breitbart.com. 
Uh, this, this is where we're at. Uh, this was followed a few days later by another massive WikiLeaks leak of CIA documents. Trump White House had to make some rather ingenious distinctions to explain why the, they really liked those leaks last year during last year's campaign when it was Hillary's emails. Uh, but they think the new ones are terrible. And then, of course, in the news that actually might affect people's lives in the real world, the, uh, the GOP finally, finally, after several months, unveiled its official Obamacare repeal and replacement bill. And we're going we're gonna to open up the phone lines on that in just a little while. Uh, give us a call at 844-745-TALK. That is 844-745-8255. And basically the question is, what do you want Congress to do? Do you want them to keep Obamacare? Do you want them to repeal Obamacare, to scrap it, or replace it? Uh, joining me on the line to talk about this guy who knows a lot more about this than I do is Philip Klein, the managing editor and the columnist for the Washington Examiner and the author of Overcoming Obamacare, Three Approaches to Reversing the Government Takeover of Healthcare. And he joins us now. Philip, good evening. How are you? Doing pretty well. How are you doing? Good. So tell me, why do conservatives hate this bill so much? Uh, there are a number of specific policy disagreements, which we could certainly get into to the extent that you believe your listeners are interested. The overarching uh, reason is that it preserves a lot of Obamacare and that basically the, the, the issue is that it, it does so without inoculating Republicans from a lot of the charges that liberals are going to make against any conservative health care reform, which is that it cut, you know, people are going to lose coverage. Um, and so as a result of that, it's kind of the worst of both worlds because Republicans are getting pummeled for stripping coverage away from people, but they're not implementing the type of free market ideas that conservatives have been pushing for. So they're suffering the political hit without really moving the ball forward. And that's why, at the heart of it, so many conservatives have problems with it. Now, you, you wrote the other day that the Republican Obamacare plan signals that liberalism has already won. I'm guessing a lot of people listening to us now think, really? Donald Trump's in the White House. Paul Ryan is touting this conservative reform. But, you know, your argument is, is that uh, is that is, is it that because this repeal is really Obamacare light that you actually have conservatives buying into the fundamental architecture of Obamacare? Yes, th- that's the issue. Is the issue is that basically if you go back, let's say, 10 years, um, actually when President Bush was president, and you look at the health care reform that he had proposed, it was one in which individuals were given a standard deduction. Uh, and that was based around health savings accounts and a, a few other things. Um, it was much more closer, closer to uh, a free market type of plan. And then Obama comes along, and he proposes a drastic expansion of the government's role in health care, maybe not as far as uh, liberals had wanted who had wanted a single-payer system, but certainly relative to the system that existed, it was a, a, a sort of a quantum leap. And so now Republicans, after years of saying they, they're going to repeal Obamacare, running on it in four straight elections that they're going to repeal Obamacare, come in 
And what do they do? They propose a bill that, yes, in on paper, they're going to um, unwind the Medicaid expansion and Obamacare's subsidy regime. Uh, but on the flip side, they are replacing the Obamacare subsidies with a different form of Republican subsidies. And the Medicaid spending levels are still going to be enhanced and higher uh, than they otherwise would have been without Obamacare. The Republican plan still requires insurance companies to cover people with pre-existing conditions. It still mandates that all insurance policies provide a comprehensive set of benefits. Um, instead of the individual mandate to purchase insurance, it says that if you don't purchase insurance and then you go without insurance for a year or for more than two months and then you try to purchase insurance, then you have to pay this 30% premium surcharge. So basically, structurally and philosophically, it buys into a lot of the premises of Obamacare. The central one being that the federal government has an important role to play in in guaranteeing individuals have a certain level of uh, coverage. And that is a big departure. So ultimately, even if as a re- this reform would, if, even if this went into place and was completely implemented as written, when Democrats next take over, and it will, they will be starting much further down the field um, than they would have uh, if uh, Republicans had really gone for a more pure form of free market okay, uh, there, help you. There's, there's obviously a rather fevered effort right now to frame this issue, particularly among, among Republicans. I want to play a couple of sound bites from Paul Ryan, who is insisting that this is, in fact, the bill that we have been waiting for. This is the bill that Republicans promised, and this is conservative reform. Let's play uh, Paul Ryan, what he had to say. This bill, the American Health Care Act, It keeps our promise to repeal and replace Obamacare. It delivers relief to Americans fed up with skyrocketing premiums and fewer choices. It moves us away from the broken status quo toward a better patient-centered system. What I want to tell my fellow citizens is that the nightmare of Obamacare is about to end, that we are doing what we said we would do in this campaign, which is repeal and replace this awful law that is crashing. And then he goes on to basically describe what uh, they're doing as an act of mercy. Obamacare is collapsing. Obamacare isn't staying. If we did nothing, the law would collapse and leave everybody without affordable health care. We are doing an mer- act of mercy by repealing this law and replacing it with patient-centered health care reforms that we as conservatives have been arguing for and fighting for for years. Well, that's a, that's a strong case, isn't it, Philip Klein? Is he doing all those things? Well, look, I mean, part of it is true in the sense that Obamacare left untouched is not sustainable. The, the program is not signing up enough young and healthy people in order to offset the costs of covering older and sicker people. Where insurers have been losing billions of dollars and leaving the exchanges and raising premiums and leaving individuals with very few choices. So clearly it's true that left on its own, 
Obamacare is not sustainable. With that said, the typical way that a conservative plan would address this is to say, we're going to attack the regulations and make it so that individuals can purchase whatever type of insurance that they want uh, relative to the needs that they have, and that individuals should be able to have portability. They should be able to take insurance with them from job to job. Uh, They should be able uh, to have a lot of different options. And so the, the way that conservatives say that you attract younger people into the insurance market is that you strip away regulations so that you allow them to purchase an insurance policy that makes sense for them. You're not the difficulty of Obamacare is it says to a young person who has very limited medical needs, you should pay several hundred dollars a month to purchase insurance. I mean, when a lot of people, when they're in their 20s, don't visit a doctor maybe the entire year. So it's clearly not a good deal. But the Republican plan, because it's afraid to really uh, yeah. tackle a lot of the and say that they're stripping benefits away from people, it doesn't get rid of those. Yeah, I wanna, and yet, I wanna, right. unlike I, Obamacare, mm-hmm. oh, sorry, yeah. I want to get to the politics in, in just a little while, but but one of the things that that has surprised me about this this rollout. Um, was 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 is first of all that they are actually having votes on it. They're having the markups in the committees today without waiting for the Congressional Budget Office to come in with the estimates. We don't know how much this is going to cost. We don't know how many people are going to be affected by by this. And as somebody um, who I, I remember quite well back in 2009, 2010, one of the objections that conservatives made all the time about Obamacare was that it was being rammed through. But are the Republicans really going to push this through between now and Easter and have votes on it before we get the CBO numbers? And why would they do I that? I think it's going to be really tough. I mean, one thing is that you have to assume that they're thinking that the CBO score is going to be really bad, or else they wouldn't try to be rushing this through without getting a CBO score. If they were confident that the CBO score would validate a lot of their arguments, then they would have waited for the CBO score before releasing so what's, it. So what's the worst? Then, what's the worst news? Like what? Fifteen million people will lose health care, and it will add to the deficit. Yeah the, yeah, the issue is that because of the fact that they're spending a lot of money, and see, a conservative health plan, what they do is you get rid of the tax increases, but you also save a ton of money on spending because you're not spending as much on subsidizing insurance, but because the Republicans still want to subsidize insurance to a large degree, they're going to still be spending a lot of money. So, But they're stripping out Obamacare's trillion dollars of taxes that help pay for that spending. So it's the CBO score is likely to say that millions of people will lose coverage and that it will add to the deficit relative to Obamacare. No, I just, That's I, what the CBO yeah. score I, I, I still don't get how the politics then works in, in their favor. If they, if they vote on it before getting that number, they still own it afterwards. You broke it. You want it. Let's, uh, uh, Philip, let's go to a call before we take our first break. Let's go to uh, Columbus, Ohio. Brandon, uh, welcome to Indivisible. Good evening. Hi, good evening. Thanks so much for taking my call. Sure. 
Um, I just wanted to say, first of all, I'm, I'm happy to hear that it seems like at least the Republican process is maybe a, maybe a little more uh, deliberate than the Democratic one was the last time around. But, you know, it sure stinks up that the you know, that, that as soon as the Republicans lose control, which eventually it will, you know, sure. it sways back and forth, that we're going to end up right in the same point. You know, like, why can't we get a logical, centrist view on something and, and fix, the, fix the problem, take care of this, where it's not going to get completely undone? Of course, of course what will Trump care's legacy, legacy be? And I think, you know, that I can't imagine that's an unpopular question. And I think it's about time that we get something that is common sense and logical rather than politically charged and, you know, on one side of the aisle or the other. Brandon, thanks for the call. And basically, that's not what you're going to get, is it, Philip? Because just like Obamacare, there's not going to be any bipartisan consensus. This is going to be pretty much straight party lines, wouldn't you say? Look, health care policy is hard. You're talking one-sixth of the economy. It, it's an incredibly emotional issue and personal issue for people, and there's huge philosophical disagreements. And the mechanics are very difficult, and there are so many interlocking parts. And if you try to do one thing, it has offsetting effects on something else. And because of that, any process is going to be super complicated, you know. Yeah. Um, President Obama said a lot of things in selling his health care law that turned out to, to not be true. But I always say that one of the things that was the, the biggest um, uh, fallacies was when he said during his joint address to Congress, I'm not the first president to tackle this, but I'm determined to be the last. And the issue is that by drastically expanding the government role in the health care, he ensured that this is going to be an issue that, as long as we live, is going to be the source of constant political warfare. Yeah, and the, and the politics, though, on this legislation are fascinating. You, you, have the, you obviously have the conservatives um, who want full repeal now, the Rand, the, the Rand Pauls, you know, Heritage Action, Club for Growth even Breitbart News, which we can come back to in a moment. Then over in the Senate, you have the Don't Touch Our Medicaid expansion, so that if you move the bill to the right uh, in the House, it becomes harder to pass it in the, the Senate. And then you have a lot of these outside industry groups, you know, the American Hospital Association, AARP, has come out. This is going to be a heavy lift, uh, isn't it? Let's, and uh, we're going to continue. So i got to take a, a break. We're going to take a very short break. You are listening to Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Charlie Sykes. We're talking with Philip Klein, managing editor and columnist for The Washington Examiner and author of the book Overcoming Obamacare. We'll hear more from him and take more of your calls after the break. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. 
This is Charlie Sykes at WNYC in New York. I'm here with Philip Klein, Managing Editor and Columnist for the Washington Examiner. We're taking your calls. Our number 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. The president says he is completely on board, but obviously the point person at the moment is Speaker Paul Ryan. There are two ways of fixing health care. Have the government run it and ration it and, and, and put price controls. That's what Obamacare does. That's what the left wants. Or do what conservatives have been arguing for for years, have a vibrant free market where people get to do what they want. They buy what they want. Equalize the tax treatment. Stop the discrimination in the tax code against people who want to go out in a free marketplace and buy the health care of their choosing. This does that. This lowers costs, creates competition, it allows choices. The most important thing that this thing does is it takes power out of Washington, takes power out of the bureaucracy, and puts it back to doctors and patients where it belongs. And yet, conservatives have just been ripping this Obamacare repeal bill. And, of course, there's also kinds of questions about uh, the, the allocation of money. Let, I want to uh, ask you about this, Philip. Um, the subsidies remain under the new plan, but essentially they're being set according to age, not income. Is that correct? They're, they're calling them tax credits, refundable tax credits. But those are basically subsidies for individuals to be able to purchase insurance. Why did they make the switch from income to age? Um, a lot of it has to do with administration. It's easier to verify because one of the big challenges to Obamacare and one of the reasons why the whole website crashed down and they had so many technical problems rolling it out is that it's really they wanted to in real time confirm and verify somebody's income because when you say it's based on income and you're giving somebody a a subsidy right away you have to figure out how to verify it and it's very hard to try to figure that out what do you whereas age everyone you know you enter your age it's on file oh, with the oh. Social Security office. It just you enter in your date of birth, and that tells you what the subsidy is. So that's a big reason. There are other reasons in terms of um, trying to more efficiently allocate um, the amount of money that you have. So, for instance, if you're just adjusting it by income, mm-hmm. then you have somebody who's young, who is lower income, sure. who would be able to get a cheap plan, but they're getting a high subsidy, the same subsidy as someone who's older at a low income, yeah. now, you, even you, though... We, we, yeah. know, we know we can hear from the Democrats that uh, this is a massive tax cut that will mainly go to upper-income individuals who won't have to pay the, the investment tax, uh, the, the, the payroll tax. Uh, and, and so therefore, you know, you, in terms of the winners and losers, this is a massive tax cut for the rich, and it will reduce the, the subsidies for lower-income individuals. How are Republicans going to answer that? Well, I mean, I think the issue is that, I mean, it, <clears throat> the issue, part of the issue is that Obama, is that the, a lot of the taxes that they say are on the um, rich get passed down to consumers. So a lot of the taxes, for instance, on health insurance, there's a tax on health insurance plans. That just is one thing that increases premiums, and that gets paid by everyone. The mandate tax has uh, affected more middle-class people than it has wealthy people. The um, 
and all the like medical device taxes and all of those various taxes ultimately are paid by the consumer. Okay, let's talk about um, let's let me talk about the politics here. What what do you think is the most likely tweak that they will have to make to get it through the House of Representatives? And anything that jumps out at you that that you you think is is most likely to be subject to negotiation? I mean, I think a lot of it depends on how where the opposition ultimately is coming from. If um, the opposition ultimately they need to get over conservatives, I think there are a few things that they could do. Um, they could, um, for instance, start the the right now the way that the it works is that. Uh, the Medicaid, for instance, the process of repealing that doesn't really start until 2020, which I think for good reason makes a lot of conservatives feel like it's never going to happen. Um, whereas if what you did was you froze new enrollment mm-hmm. in the expanded Medicaid, then you can still ensure that people who are currently receiving Obamacare Medicaid benefits are grandfathered in but you'd start to put a cap on Earlier. the amount of people. But then, but then, don't, people, yeah, then, yeah. then you, don't you start losing some of those moderate Republican senators from the states with the, with the expansion, like Portman from Ohio, Murkowski from, uh, from Alaska, Capito from West Virginia, uh, Gardner from Colorado? I mean, he, well, I, I mean, the thing is that you have to get past it in the House first, right? So if it doesn't pass the House, then nothing ever gets to the Senate anyway. So Paul Ryan has a tough enough time trying to figure out how do I have a bill that can get through the House. He can't be then negotiating and trying to game out what gets the votes in the Senate. That's putting the cart before the horse. Ultimately, you if you're always yeah. in. Right. Yeah. Ultimately, though, if you're Donald Trump, this is a must-pass piece of legislation, isn't it? I mean, he, he cannot afford to lose on this legislation. Yes, I think it's really, it's going to be really difficult for him to say that, I mean, it's, it was such a big part of his plan. And it's not only the idea of repealing and replacing, because let's face it, whatever gets passed and signed, he's going to say, this is repeal and replace, and it's the greatest thing. Yeah. But he and it's going to, to be, be Trump able- care, right? I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's Trump care. There's no way, whatever he says... He's going to own this thing going forward. It's Trump care. Yes. And so the issue is that, so one, he has to get something passed because, so he can say, I repealed and replaced Obamacare. But two, if he doesn't get it done, then it really takes, uh, uh, makes a major dent in one of his major premises, which is, I'm the great deal maker. I'm this businessman. These politicians, they're all talk, no action. I'm going to use my business know-how to get in there and crack heads and get the government moving for you again. If he goes in there and Obamacare, the the sort of rube, you know, senator community organizer went in there and was able to get a complicated health care plan passed, and Trump, the brilliant businessman and deal maker who wrote the book on deal making, can't make a deal through. It's a huge blow. It's to a, his. It is a remarkable, uh, you know, alliance between Paul Ryan and Donald Trump, but it's also somewhat what fragile. 
and I'm I'm wondering how long it lasts because I'm I'm noticing, and you probably noticed this as well. I'm noticing on some of the pro-Trump websites like Breitbart and Drudge, they're they're refu- they're referring to this as Ryan Care. And you would never know by reading some of their articles that Trump is supporting. Is there a possibility that at some point there's going to be an escape hatch for Trump and that if this thing becomes toxic, if it starts going south, whatever analogy you want to use, that uh, that Trump is going to say, yeah, that was Paul Ryan's thing. That wasn't my idea anyway. I'm I'm out. And I mean, that honestly is one of the big problems in terms of getting something passed, because basically when President Obama passed Obamacare, right, one of the reasons why it was Obamacare is that he was consistently sending the message that we need to get this done, I want to get this done, and he was made that clear. And basically, it was, he shepherded across the goal line, he said to members of Congress, I've got your back. If you vote for this, I'll campaign for you. And I'll you know I'll help you out, and we're going to get through this together. And granted, it didn't work out for them that no, way. No, it didn't. But but, but at, least, at least rhetorically, President Trump is is suggesting. At least he's saying. At least right now, he is saying all the right things. I'm proud to support the replacement plan released by the House of Representatives and encouraged by members of both parties. I think really that uh, we're going to have something that's going to be much more understood and much more popular than people can even imagine. It follows the guidelines I laid out in my congressional address, a plan that will lower costs, expand choices, increase competition, and ensure health care access for all Americans. This will be a plan where you can choose your doctor. This will be a plan where you can choose your plan. And you know what the plan is. This is the plan. And we're going to have uh, a tremendous, I think we're going to have a tremendous success. Uh, it's a complicated process, but actually it's very simple. It's called good health care. Yeah, it's really very simple, um, Philip Klein. So he, at least he's, he's acting like he's on, on, on board right right now. Your, your take on that. How philosophically committed is he to this reform plan? Well, that's the issue, is that we don't know, and that's got to be in the back of the minds of a lot of members of Congress about, if I take this this vote that's a tough vote, and I decide to pass this bill, how do I know that Trump is going to cut us off at some point? Yeah, exactly. Right? Because he's, I mean, and, I mean, you played these sound clips mm-hmm. of him sort of affirming the bill, but this is also somebody who... You talked about, you know, South Korea and all these other countries getting nuclear weapons and saying it was fine. And then when he was asked about it, he said, I never said that. You're all a bunch of liars. He's sort of done this on so many issues. We we have been there. And remember last year he was saying how we want he will cover everyone, universal coverage. What happens when that CBO comes out? The CBO report comes out with with the big number on the number of people who will lose. I, I don't know. Let's go. Let's go to get some uh, calls in here in the next uh, couple of minutes. Luke from Raleigh, North Carolina. You are on Indivisible. Good evening. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Sure, Luke. Um, I just wanted to. You guys have mentioned this a little bit, but that this is not a conservative replacement bill. Um, a, a conservative approach would be to let the free market run its course, to decrease the federal government's role. To, if anything, the state should should decide what, what's going on. So I would just I wanted you guys to explain a little bit about like Rand Paul's proposed bill, what that would have looked like, and why you think Republicans didn't go that direction. 
Thanks, Luke. Actually, Rand Paul's a fascinating character. Wasn't he the guy? It originally wasn't the plan, Philip, um, that that they were just going to do a straight repeal. And Rand Paul was the guy who said, no, 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 we can't do a straight repeal. We have to do repeal and replace. And now he's back to just repeal, right? Yes, he's back to saying we've got to do the repeal. And then there's some wiggling about where he'll say we've got to do repeal, but we can vote on replace the same day. So there is a bit of wiggling. But um, Rand Paul has a bill that is more of a pure free market system. It it involves um, expanding uh, more than more than the Republican bill does expanding health, the use of health savings accounts, and the biggest change is that it's really rooted um, around giving individuals tax deductions. And the, this gets into very technical way, but the, the bottom line is that a tax deduction functions more like a tax cut. Um, your taxes are reduced by the amount that you spend on health insurance under a a deduction-based approach. Mm -hmm. However, the House Republican bill, it says that regardless of what you pay in taxes, you get a specified amount of money. So it may be $3,000, it may be $4,000, depending on your age, but you get a specified amount of money no matter what your tax Mm -hmm. liability is. And it's also given to you when you purchase insurance. So it doesn't come when you file your taxes, but it comes kind of at the point of sale, so to speak. So as a result of that, the House Republican bill functions much more like spending, where the Rand Paul approach functions much more like a tax cut. And that's one of the fundamental disagreements that we have right now. Well explained. Let's go to uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Matt, you're on Indivisible. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, my family and I have been on Obamacare since 2008, when it was uh, when it was unveiled, or 2000, whenever since it began, and uh, and you know we're pretty hardcore Democrats, but also we can no longer afford our health care, and um, I think the the tricky thing now is that it's so wrapped up in politics that even a good idea from the Republican side is dismissed. Um, I don't think what they've proposed is necessarily a good idea or a fix, because I don't see how you can cut the revenue side and the mandate side and expect costs to go down. But um, I think there's a lot of people, uh, especially small business owners, who don't really have a company to fall back on who really need a, a solid plan so that we can uh, lower those payments so we're not paying more for health care than we are for our mortgages. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Thanks for the call. Um, he, he does raise that interesting question, and I'm still not sure how the Rubik's cube works here. How do you slash all of the the, the income that comes in here and uh, remove at least the the formal mandate and not have your own form of a death spiral? Well, let me ask you this before I even get to this. Philip, I mean, there's a lot of debate. Do you think that Obamacare is in the so-called death spiral right now? Um, I think that it is clearly. It you know it looks like it is, um, but we you know of course these things are very fluid. But it it's very clear without sort of putting terminology on it that you're having a situation in which insurers are losing money because they're not getting enough younger and healthier people to sign up because the insurance is too expensive because of the regulatory right. regime, and so they're having to raise premiums, which is dissuade further dissuading people from signing up. And as a result of that, 
a lot of them are bailing on the market. And you had an insurer recently, Molina Healthcare, yes. which is a small insurer mm-hmm. nationally, but was heavily invested in Obamacare. And if you go back in previous years, you'll see a lot of stories that sort of said, meet the one insurer that's making money out of Obamacare. And they had just had a disastrous yeah. earnings report recently where they said they were losing hundreds of millions of dollars and they couldn't commit to the law in 2018. And this is a company that was died in the wool, super excited and super enthusiastic about Obamacare. Yeah. That is a massive red flag. They were sort of the canary in the coal mine, weren't they, on, on all of that? Yes. Well, I mean, and this if, is the— If the, they're thinking yeah, about yeah. then— yeah, I mean, this, have, this, this is yeah. what you're going to hear from Republicans, of course, is they're going to say, look, uh, you have double-digit increases in 31 states uh, in, in, in the premiums here. In a third of the counties in this country, you only have one insurance company. The question is now the focus is going to be on whether their plan is going to make things is going to make things any any better at, at, at all. Let's go to uh, Vida from uh, Appalachia, New York. Uh, good evening. Welcome to Indivisible. Hi, uh, thank you for taking my call. Um, okay. I, I believe that health care is a right, so I think all of this is kind of silly. I feel like the government should think about providing it for everyone. Um, I also have a personal reason because my daughter has a pre-existing condition, and I believe those things should be you know, covered and there shouldn't be caps, and insurance companies shouldn't have the right to actually decide whether she gets insurance or not. But um, what I wanted to say is I don't understand why our country doesn't follow the lead of other countries um, and have a single-payer system. Um, I believe that the ACA uh, was not perfect, and it isn't perfect. Um, But after reading all 123 pages of the committee print of the Republican plan, um, it seems a little flawed to me, and it seems worse. Um, I don't understand. Uh, why there's a 30% surcharge. All right, Vida, sorry, we're, we're, we've run out of time. And, Philip, you know, we're going to have this. This debate is going to continue, this whole question. Uh, Philip Klein's a managing editor and columnist for The Washington Examiner. Thanks uh, for joining us. You're listening to Indivisible. More after the break. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. This is Indivisible. Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. Let's keep the phone lines open. This is Charlie Sykes broadcasting from WNYC in New York. You're listening to Indivisible, Public Radio's new live national call-in show for the first 100 days of the Trump administration. And let's let's uh, let's stick with this. And you know, part of the the problem of dealing with an issue uh, like like healthcare is first of all, you, you know, it, it is incredibly complicated. And even though Donald Trump said, you know, who knew that it would would be this this hard, it is amazingly difficult. It's the politics are difficult, the economics are difficult, the human consequences are difficult. But this is the real deal. It really strikes me that that with everything that's happened so far in, in the Trump administration, this is really game time. This is going to be the biggest issue. I had a very interesting conversation with uh, some political pundits earlier in the day who were saying that 
they were puzzled by why the Republicans and the administration would choose to take up health care first as opposed to more low-hanging fruit. Why take on the most divisive, the most complicated, difficult problem, Uh, especially when you could have done something like an infrastructure bill, which would be complicated, or tax cuts, or something else that doesn't quite have the the radioactive quality that this has. And and the the, the point to, to remember is that this is an issue. Healthcare is an issue unlike any other issue that we talk about in terms of domestic policies. We could, we could talk about, at some point, we'll talk about the border adjustment bill. We'll talk about uh, you know, the need to uh, reform the tax system or, or spend money on infrastructure. Well, those are generally you know, somewhat esoteric, wonky issues. They don't hit people the way that healthcare hits people. This is personal. This is emotional. There are real winners and losers, consequences that way beyond just the economy. And there's a reason why um, this has been politically toxic for every political party that's taken it on. And in, in some ways, this is a little healthcare has been a little bit like invading Afghanistan because it doesn't work out well for people to get into it. Look what happened to the Democrats when they took on Obamacare. And Obamacare's got some serious problems. You, you, you are losing many of the plans. You have many Americans who only have one option. Uh, the premiums have been spiking. It has not worked out the way it is designed. But, but on the other hand, think about the disruption of a change like the one we're talking now. Uh, talking about now, um, for for example, I mean, we don't really know, you know, even though this is the, what the national debate is about, we don't know how many people are going to lose coverage. We don't know what, how this is going to affect the deficit. Um, I'm a big fan of Paul Ryan. I've said this in the past. It really surprises me that he would move ahead on this without having that CBO score about this. Um, and and the CBO score is, is a big deal uh, because it will tell you what we're about to do. And the House committees with jurisdiction took up the plan today and are advancing it without that kind of analysis, which is kind of remarkable. Um, we do know some things about it. And I kind of wonder how this is going to play out, that there are people who have been disillusioned with Obamacare, but right now have some pretty significant questions. All right, what are we going to do, even if Obamacare is flawed? Do any of the proposals that you're hearing about, do they fix the problem? Now, there are the ideological questions, and conservatives are very strong. I mean, you, the, the language from uh, the conservatives on, on this um, uh, you could you could interpret it in one of two ways. Number one, that they are just out, or that this is part of a negotiating strategy. But I'm just not sure how you can move this uh, this legislation in the next three weeks. So uh, let's uh, let's go back uh, let's go back to the phones. Uh, who we're going to go to? Let's go to let's go to Keaton from Kansas City, Missouri. Keaton, you are on Indivisible. Good evening. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I just uh, have a couple of questions, really. Um, a coworker of mine, uh, we've been talking about this a lot lately. And by the way, I, I have Obamacare, so it helps me out. But, um, you know, he's mentioned to me that this whole idea of Obamacare came from something uh, that Mitt Romney had been talking about and did in his state. He called it Romneycare, and I believe that's... Uh, given the people there, like, 98% coverage. And so I don't understand why a lot of conservatives just shoot this down, because it works really well for him. Um, Also, I think a big thing that people are not paying attention to is that 
you know, someone like me that doesn't make a whole lot of money to go to the emergency room for me, I went there for a car accident and I came out with a $16,000 bill because I didn't have insurance, but now I can afford it. So I guess what's going on now, I, I'm just worried that I'm going to be right back where I was and not be able to afford it and then be scared to go to the hospital again. Well, see, th- these are the stories that somehow they're going to have to answer and say, okay, now this is what we're going to do that's going to make something better for you. Now, th- because there's there's two different levels you debate these are these uh, these issues on. Number one is the, you know, the fiscal issue, the philosophical issue, and then there's that human story, Keaton, and that's where you know that that's why this is so potentially toxic politically. Now, he said, why do conservatives object? Well. You know, conservatives don't like the idea of the federal government ordering you to buy a product. Never before in American history has the federal government said, you must buy this product, and we're going to tell you what it looks like. Um, and I think that that's what, what rankled a lot of folks. That um, and, I, and I think th- this is one of the—what we're seeing here is, I think, a little bit of the pushback of the government pushing too hard and too fast— Maybe in a direction that people would have gone in in the future, but they resist it, particularly when they don't know what it is. Now, here's the problem. You have Republicans coming out with a plan that people don't quite know what it is, and yet they're trying to enact it in the next, what, in the next three weeks? I don't know that that's going to happen. Although I will tell you that I, my understanding is that the Republicans in, in Congress are saying in private the same things they're saying in, in public. So, you know... You might think is Paul Ryan just sounding, you know, you know, talking brave out there, or does he understand how much uh, opposition is is developing? You know, part of this is the pressure that this they will put on Republicans in Congress will be overwhelming because they just don't want to fail on this. Okay, let's go back to the phones. Let's go to Chicago. Malik from Chicago, you aren't indivisible. Good evening. Oh, how's it going, you guys? Good. All right. So uh, the whole time I've been listening and. Um it's been good to hear a lot of the other people's personal stories and opinions. But I think, uh, really, when it, when it comes down to it, by I think both parties, Republicans and Democrats, really should just come down to agree on, you know, are we going to try to help out Americans? And I don't think it really is too helpful to uh, spend too much time with disagreements over things. And, you know, us, we can't really understand the, the difficulties of how it is to pass a bill, but... You know, understandably, a lot of Americans have hard jobs in their own aspects. So I really think uh, the government, I mean, they need to do, they need to do something. You know, it's hard to pass a bill, but being stagnant is, I think, it's even worse. Not making any progress rather than trying and failing. So do you do you uh, want them to pass? Do, 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 do you want them to pass the Ryan Trump bill? You know, what I've seen with the Trump bill so far, it doesn't look like it's going to be the worst bill. I think people who have um, pre-existing conditions who need to keep coverage that should be like a one of the top priorities in the transition uh but go, saying go ahead or not i'm not a politician i haven't actually looked into everything so i i couldn't say for sure well now it's interesting though the, you you actually are looking at this saying hey it could be a lot worse this is not as bad as what you thought it was going to be no i i really uh didn't think it was um as bad as it could have been seeing as the policies were kind of just, as we, as we coined it, the Obamacare light. Um, as long as as long as people can't have coverage, I think that's fine. Uh, I'm not sure like uh, whether buying it or us having to pay entitlement should be better. That's something 
really politicians have to figure out. I'm just uh, a musician and artist. I'm trying to figure out how to do my thing. And really, uh, hopefully they can do the best to well, figure out theirs. Well, I would hope so. I, I, would, I would like to agree with you, except that there are some things that are important in my life that I really don't want politicians to figure out. You know, it's like there, there's a moment where you go, okay, are you watching those guys? Do you really want them figuring this out? Do you really want them making decisions? Because, I don't know, it's... Um, I can I could imagine a group of people that I would say I I'm going to trust you to make some pretty fundamental decisions about my family and but yeah you guys not 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 totally convinced uh, let's go to uh, is it Cordia Cordia that's it uh, from uh, Saint uh, Saint Augustine Florida good evening hello um, I would uh, just oh, I love your uh, radio show by the way um, but I was wondering um, as far as Trump care goes I was uh, doing my research on it and I was very curious to wonder how much difference would have been if the Democrats were the people taking over and um, uh, from what I understand Trump care is more just of a heavily mod- more of a modified version of Obamacare than actually an actual repeal and a replace. Well, that's what a lot of conservatives are saying. That that is exactly the complaint of people like Rand Paul, because they say, so you basically have accepted the premise that the government is going to subsidize health care. The biggest change, which we really haven't talked about yet, the biggest change is in Medicaid, where Medicaid would essentially be phased out in, in its existing form and would be block, would be turned into a block grant so that you would get a fixed sum of money for Florida, a fixed sum of money for Minnesota or Wisconsin, and then the states would have to figure out the most equitable, uh, you know, the equitable way to distribute it. That's probably the most dramatic change. There are other dramatic changes, but that's certainly one of them. I'm not sure that's a bad change. But um, th- this is this is uh, this is a long way away from a flat out repeal. So, uh, are, are, yeah, are, are, are you happy about that or, or unhappy about that? Well, as I mean, the uh, the idea of affordable health care is that it's affordable. I mean, as long as I can fit the affordability of health care alongside with, uh, let's say, paying my bills, the phone bill, and whatever. I mean, as long as health care continues to be affordable for years future to come, hopefully forever, honestly. I mean, what would the big deal be? Uh, well, that, that's the question, and whether or not a lot, of, a lot of politicians on both sides have made a lot of promises when it comes to how much this will cost and whether it will be affordable. And you might have noticed that some of those promises don't really always pan out. Let's go to Yonkers, New York. Uh, Nathan from Yonkers, you're on Indivisible. Good evening. Hi, thanks, Jake McCall. Sure. My first time calling uh, in. Thank um, you. I guess my concern, my biggest concern really is that and this is something that's more wide-ranging, um, and you see it with the Republican plan, is that we are drafting policy and we are pushing policy based on ideologies. Pragmatism is gone. We're not basing... It seems like we're not basing things on what works, but what we would want, how we want the world to work. Uh, I feel like the Republican plan, it, you know, the Affordable Care Act... The part about the, the attempt to make it affordable was the mandate. The attempt to make it affordable was to increase the pool size so that you, the insurers could have enough people and that they can keep the price down. It's you'd, They've removed all the parts that pay for the good stuff, but they still want to keep all the good stuff. It, it's going to be just a, just really bad. It's going to prices are going to go up. They're not going to. There's no. There's no way to, that they can reduce them using the system that they have. Well, prices and, uh, are going up. You know. I liked, you know, I, I supported Obama, and I liked Obamacare, although I think it needed fixes. I think the subsidies needed more generous. I wish that the uh, Medicaid expansion 
hadn't been that the states hadn't been allowed to opt out of it, but that you know that was the Supreme Court. Um, well, you yeah. know, this is but, this is the this is the problem you know about this particular legislation that. Um, what I'm most frustrated about, and you know, I, I, t- I take your point about ideology. What, what I'm most frustrated about is that this was legislation that was basically crafted in secret, and that is now on the fast track. These were things that guys like me complained about a lot back in 2009, 2010, when the Democrats were doing it. And I, 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 I think, if I'm right, the committees didn't vote on Obamacare until October and November of 2009. And now we're talking about having votes um, on this legislation in, in, in April. I think the people need to take a really deep breath and recognize you're talking about one-sixth of the economy. It is incredibly complicated, and it is absolutely crucial that this thing works. And from a political point of view, the moment this thing passes, it, it's no longer Obamacare, ever. And, and if you're right, and you know the, the price cycle continues to go up and the access goes down— then the Republicans own this. Then it is it is it is Trump care, and yeah. so the entire script flips from criticizing what doesn't work um, under Obama to all right, you guys, you know, one hundred percent lock, stock, and um, you know, and and, and barrel. Um, all right, let's uh, let's see. We have we have lots and lots of of calls here. Let's go to uh, let's go to Joe from uh, Egg Harbor City, New Jersey. Good evening. Welcome to Indiv- Indivisible. Hi, uh, thanks for taking my call. I want to first uh, ask a question that was asked before you took a break from Evita when she asked why don't we have a single-payer plan, and that she commented that we have what she believes, and I believe, too, that we have a right to health care. And I thought to myself, first of all, uh, wouldn't it be logical and and the best uh, position to take, knowing that uh, if we had the best care for our people in this country, they would be they would be producing the best of whatever endeavor they were having. And secondly, I wanted to make a very simple... Well, hold on, I'm uh, sorry. Go, go, go back to that. So if we had the best care, then what? Then um, people would would be um, performing and, and living their lives to the best of their ability and would have we would have a better outcome in every sense of the word from every individual okay, because well, they wouldn't have to be worried. That, that, would be, that would be wonderful. And I think that the, the, a lot of the answer would be that that would be... If if the world worked that way, and if we all had unicorns and we engaged in magical thinking, well, but yeah, the res- the response the response the response is that is 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 that socialized medicine doesn't produce necessarily that outcome. That would be the argument. Yeah, I know. That's why I'm saying. Why don't we take um, examine all the other single payer plans in the in the world for all the other advanced countries and see if we could come up with something based on all those experiences and see if we could come up with something for ourselves. I know that what I said sounds very idealistic like like you said referring to a unicorn. But um it does seem that healthcare is a right. You know, getting back to what Avita said at the beginning. So if you can address, you know, the possibility of what it might entail to get a single-payer health plan in the few minutes that are remaining, that would be interesting. Well, thanks. And you know, I mean, that, 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 by the way, is a much deeper argument. And I would say that most conservatives would say, let's be careful about what we declare to be a right. It used to be that a right was things the government could not do to us, not an obligation. You know, for example, you know, I have, um, I have a right to be able to speak. I have a right um, not to have the government come into my house. When you say I have a right to something, what you're saying is I have the right to someone else's wealth. I have the right to, the, to require someone else to pay for me. But also there is this, this question of whether or not single-payer would 
result in the best possible system that we would have. And I'm certainly skeptical because I don't look to government bureaucracy for the best and the brightest. I'm glad I'm you know, I'm personally thankful that the government did not design the iPhone. I am very grateful that the government does not design Nintendo. I actually think that there are amazing things that people in, you know, when you unleash human creativity and freedom as opposed to bureaucracy, and I guess that would be the philosophical different difference uh, difference there. And also, the reality is that with all the debates that we are having about Obamacare and Trump care, you know, it's, it is worthwhile stepping back and to recognize that we do live in an we do live in an age of miracles when it comes to medicine. You know, any of you that have encountered the, the medical system, you have to recognize that that with all the problems that we have, uh, we have the best doctors and nurses and hospitals and techniques uh, in the entire world. You'd rather be sick here than pretty much anywhere else. And that's one of the reasons why I think people have been resistant to change, because you don't want to mess with something that is that important. But I think we're going to have a debate um, about these these kinds of issues. Is is healthcare a right? Is is it an entitlement? Is this something um, that the, that we really want the government to control, or is this something that we should return to the marketplace? And we're not going to resolve that tonight. Certainly not by the end of this show. In fact, that's all for this Wednesday night on Indivisible Public Radio's new national conversation about America in a time of change tomorrow night. Minnesota Public Radio's Carrie Miller will check in with millennial listeners about where they fit into our divided country, and she'll also explore how millennials might be able to bring us together. Until then, you can keep the conversation going at IndivisibleRadio.com, where you can leave us a comment or a voicemail anytime. I'm Charlie Sykes, and if we're still around, I'll be back here next Wednesday. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.